you to John chapter 4. This is a beautiful story of Jesus entering into Samaria, the hated lands. The Jews all detested the Samaritans. And speaking with a woman there, he proclaims the good news, the gospel, to her. And so, we have many examples of Jesus proclaiming the gospel to people throughout the gospels, throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is just one example, but there's a lot that we can learn from Jesus, how he approaches her, and what he's driving towards throughout the conversation. So pay attention as we read this to um, the contrast, the, the conflict, really, that we see between the spiritual and the physical needs that are on display in this story. Okay, there's, there's spiritual and there's physical needs, and Jesus continues to drive at the spiritual throughout the lengthy conversation that they have. We're not going to um, finish the entirety of the story, uh, but we are going to read verses 4 through 26 here in John chapter 4. Please stand, if you would, for the reading of God's word. And he, meaning Jesus, had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. 
Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So to start with, let's get some let's get some facts out there about the Samaritans and the Jews, okay? The Samaritans worshipped improperly. There was uh, a reason for the Jews to not associate with the Samaritans. Um, and the Samaritans had long been enemies of the Jews. Uh, if you go back and you read in Ezra, you discover that the Samaritans were the people that uh, tried to prevent the rebuilding of Jerusalem and of the temple. Um, and you see the, the conflict grow. They had been settled in the land of Judah when the Jews were in exile. And so it's not simply a, it's not simply a religious conflict. Um, but a land conflict. And as I was thinking about this, probably the best comparison to make today in terms of trying to understand this is, of course, the Jews today and Palestine, right? There's still a very similar kind of conflict going on where there's a religious and a land conflict. And they... They, different people care more about different aspects of the conflict, but um, there's that, that heated hatred between the two peoples. Okay? So the Jews' hatred of the Samaritans in part included the fact that the Samaritans were in, as they saw it, their land, taking up their space in their cities using their resources. Um, But as we see, Jesus um, makes clear salvation is of the Jews. There, There is a legitimate religious conflict in terms of the Jews and the Samaritans. The problem is that the Jews are not content simply to teach and love the Samaritans and seek to see them brought to the true religion instead of this bastardized version that they have. And it was a, it, that's exactly what it was. Okay, um, <clears throat> But instead, they hated them. The Jews hated the Samaritans. So that's the context for Jesus traveling through Samaria and ending up in the heat of the day, exhausted, weary from his journey, sitting on this well, resting, and wanting a drink. Because who shows up but, of course, a Samaritan woman, because he's in Samaria. So Jesus begins, in verse 7, by asking her for help. Jesus can't get any water out of the well, right? So a woman arrives, and she's able to help him, and he asks her for help meeting his physical need for water, right? But she is turned against the Jews in her expectations. What she expects from any Jew is... Uh, not love, but hatred, because this was the common uh, emotion between the two, right? And because of how the Samaritans were treated by the Jews, who would have absolutely nothing to do with them, she's, she responds with surprise, shock, scorn, It's not entirely clear throughout this whole passage exactly what her attitude is to Jesus. Okay? But at the very least, she is surprised. Um, 
And it appears that she's more than surprised. She's somewhat scornful of Jesus asking her for help. Regardless, whether it's because of her shock or because she's embittered by how she's been treated by the Jews, or if it's because she's enjoying the irony of the situation where a Jewish man is asking for help from a Samaritan woman, whatever the reason, she doesn't help him. Okay, and that's, we've got to have that clear in our minds from the very beginning. He's asked for help. He wants some water. He's thirsty. He's exhausted from traveling. It's the heat of the day. He's sitting there, and he wants water, and she doesn't get him any water. That's rude, regardless of the reason why she doesn't do it, right? <clears throat> Instead, she wants to know why or how it comes to be that he, a Jewish man, would stoop to asking for her help or why he would expect her to actually help him. How does this come to be, you know? How is it that you are asking me? And as though you, you would expect me to help you or you would stoop to asking me to help you? It just... It just doesn't compute to her at some level. The way I look at it, it seems to me that she's standing there and going, now isn't this an interesting situation? (laughs) Isn't this an interesting situation? You need help, and here I am, the only one who can help you, and me, a Samaritan woman at that, you know? (laughs) So Jesus doesn't get anywhere in his request for help from her. And even though he hasn't gotten anywhere seeking a drink while he's weary from his traveling, he now turns his attention to her spiritual condition of need. As opposed to his own physical condition of need. So he immediately switches from worrying about his own physical need that she has rudely refused to help him with to instead caring for her spiritual need and offering her help for her spiritual need in spite of the fact that she is refusing him help for his physical need. You follow? So what a beautiful example of loving your enemy, right? And unlike her, as he begins to see her spiritual need, he is actually willing to help her. And he declares his willingness to help her as he says that he would have helped her if she would ask him for help. Now this is not him being spiteful. You know, this isn't the reaction of an angry man saying, well, you know, if I had had a way to get water out of the well and you were here, I would have gotten you water. But it does drive home the fact that she has refused to help him. Because what does he say? He says to her in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. If you had asked, if you had known to ask, I would have given you my help. And it's not in a, but now it's too late, you've been rude to me, and I'm not going to help you now. This is a loving statement of Jesus, but what he is forcing her to come to grips with is a few different things the most obvious of which is I'm willing to help you in spite of the fact that you are unwilling to help me.
if she simply knew what a gift it was to her that she happened to be at the well at the same time as Jesus. In other words, what he's done is he's turned the tables on her. He's completely flipped around the expectation and understanding of the situation. She sees herself as the one who has the ability to help, the one in control of the situation, the one with power, the one who, ha- who uh, needs to be appealed to. And Jesus says, actually, you don't understand what's going on here. It's not lucky for me that, I happened to be at the, that you happened to come to the well right now while I was here needing water. It's lucky for you that you came to the well at the same time as I was already here. In fact, not lucky, but what? A gift from God. A gift from God. You see how the tables have turned. (laughs) He's turning her understanding of the situation away from his physical need and to her own spiritual need. She holds no power over him, whether to give him a drink or not. The irony isn't that he, a Jew, ran into a Samaritan alone at the well and needed help. The irony is that she, a Samaritan woman, ran into the Son of God at the well and didn't know enough to ask him for help. You can imagine having... A, a somewhat similar situation. If you're traveling and you're on the train with somebody and you're having a conversation with them and you talk about the weather briefly and the next stop they get off the train and the person sitting next to me goes, did you know that that was the prime minister of France or you know some just just pick some important person right do you know that that was the does France have a prime minister I don't know sorry did you know that that was Tom Hanks did did you know that you were just talking to somebody incredibly famous incredibly powerful whatever you know and you had no idea right ah and all I did was ask him about the weather. I could have gotten a signet, you know, an autograph, or I could have asked for tips on, you know, you know, who knows what you might have wanted to do differently if you had only known that you were sitting next to this important, powerful, famous person, but you had no idea. And that's the irony of the situation. She has no idea who it is that she's come upon at the well. You could have at least had an interesting conversation with the person. Ask them about what it's like to be famous. Oh, it's it's really not very fun because there's a lot of people like you asking me what it's like. But here she is. She's at the well. She's with the Son of God. And she doesn't even know the gift of God in allowing her to be there at that time. So Jesus turns the tables and he then makes this offer. Yeah, I asked you for water and you haven't given me any. But if you ask me for living water, I will give you living water. This offer, this, this reference to living water, this is Jesus speaking of the Holy Spirit, offering the, the, uh, the power of the Spirit working within her. Just like it was uh, when Jesus was speaking of water with Nicodemus in the previous chapter, the, 
the statement that he's making is a spiritual statement. Okay? So we, we, we shouldn't forget where we've come as we make it through this book. We've, Jesus, um, just earlier in chapter 3, was speaking to Nicodemus and talking about the necessity of being born of the Spirit and water, and he's referring to the same thing here when he talks about living water. Okay? He's talking about the Spirit of God. But this woman, this Samaritan woman, is intent on not seeing her own spiritual need. She is intent on not understanding the help that Jesus is offering. Now, I say intent on this, and we'll see a number of times as we continue on through this chapter how she is intent on not understanding, not seeing. Um, Similarly, the disciples are intent on not understanding what Jesus is talking about a lot of the time. Okay, So this isn't me being overly critical of this woman or reading the worst possible motives into her. I'm, I'm just saying we as people, mankind, in our sinful nature, we are blind to the spiritual realities around us so much of the time, number one. And number two, we don't want to have our eyes opened. And that's what we see here with this woman. In verses 11 and 12, what she does is she denies his ability to help her. The well is deep, and you have nothing to draw with. How are you going to get water? Right? So she denies that Jesus is anybody special, that, any, that he could offer her any actual help. She denies that there is anything besides the physical. She's focused on this well, right? You can't can't help me because you can't get water out of this well. This well is all there is. This is the only kind of water there is. You can't help because there is no such thing as this spiritual, this living water that you talk about. In fact, there is no such thing as the spiritual need that you're trying to get me to see. And she denies Jesus' greatness. She denies that it was a gift from God that she was by him at that time when she says, even if there was something living, you can't be greater than Jacob who built this well. Jacob would be better able to get something like living water than you. That's the gist of what she says. You see? She, you can't get water out of this well. And besides, you're not greater than Jacob, are you? That betrays the recognition that she does have that there is something spiritual going on. That there is some sort of need. That there is some sort of deeper meaning Uh, there is something greater than just the water of this well that could be available maybe somewhere. But she's simply unwilling to believe that Jesus has any ability to get it for her because she says, you know, you can't be greater than Jacob, and Jacob only managed to get us this kind of water. In verses 13 and 14, Jesus responds... And he responds with an explanation of what he, what he meant by this offer of living water. The water in this well is nothing special. Drink it, get thirsty again in a few hours, right? That's the physical reality of physical water. We need to constantly keep drinking. I'm talking about something very different. He says, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. 
So what is that promise? It's a promise of salvation, eternal life. If we drink of the water that Jesus offers, we will have eternal life. And not just we will have eternal life, but we will have that living water within us. We will have it as a spring, a well coming up. And we will never thirst again. Is Jesus talking about physical thirst? Obviously not. He's not talking about physical thirst. What he's saying is that If he gives the Spirit, we will not lack the Spirit. We will never have a lack of the Spirit. Yes, you will still have spiritual desires. Okay? For example, you will have a great longing to be free from your sin. To be free from the body of this death. That will still be a longing within you. Right? So that's a thirst. When Jesus talks about not having a thirst, he's not not saying, "You'll, you'll be perfect then and there, right now. He's not saying you won't have any spiritual needs. What he's saying is you won't ever have any lack. You will have the Spirit within you. You will always have water. You will never lack for life. It will lead you to eternal life. This water, the Spirit of God. We saw earlier in chapter 3 that he says... He gives the Spirit without measure. What a promise. And that's the same claim that we have here. The Spirit that is given is without measure. The water is a spring. It's not measured out in in little, little doles here and there. It's a spring within us, welling up to eternal life. But the Samaritan woman is intent on not seeing what he's talking about. In verse 15, she responds. And her response is as if to say, Okay, prove it, bad boy. You got magic water? Give me some. Now, again, you could read her response differently. You could, you could put it in the absolute best possible light and say she's not being sarcastic, she's not being rude, she believes what he's saying, she just is still completely unable to see the spiritual and is only seeing things physically. Let's read what she actually says. <clears throat> The woman said to him, verse 15, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. I'd be happy to not have to keep coming here and drawing water. So regardless of how you understand her response, whether you see it on this side as being very sarcastic, oh yeah, give me this water that'll make me so I never have to come to the well again. Right. Or if you see it as, oh, you've got water that'll make me never have to come to the well again? Either way, what is perfectly clear about her response is that She is still refusing, unable to see or admit the spiritual nature of her need. Her physical thirst is only a faint shadow 
compared to the need that she has for spiritual water. This physical need is nothing. Coming to draw at the well, yeah, I mean, yeah, you get thirsty, and yeah, it, if you've ever gone a long time without water, you get really thirsty, don't you? And it really hurts. And you will really die without water. But that need is as nothing compared to the spiritual need that she has for the living water that he is offering. And the interesting thing is that that need that she has is not purely a spiritual need, but also a physical need. Really, there is no separating our bodies from our spirits. Okay, so I know I've been talking this whole time about physical need versus spiritual need, but I want you to see here that her physical well-being is dependent on her spiritual life. Without spiritual life, without spiritual living water, her physical body will ultimately die and be destroyed eternally in hell. That is a physical reality flowing out of the spiritual consequences of whether we turn to Jesus Christ and receive this gift from him or not. So she's still completely in the dark. So how does Jesus ultimately drive home the point that she has a need? She's still not wanting to see that she has a need. She's finally kind of coming to the point where, well, yeah, I guess it it is kind of frustrating living in a fallen world where I keep getting thirsty all the time and keep having to do this hard work of coming to the well. But that's the closest she gets so far to admitting her need, right? How does Jesus ultimately drive home that point that she has a need that she's unwilling to see or admit? He does so by confronting her sin. He said to her, verse 16, Go, call your husband and come here. She's still resisting when she responds and says, I have no husband. Now it's Jesus' turn to be somewhat sarcastic. When he says, you have correctly said I have no husband, verse 17, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Was she telling him the truth when she said I have no husband? Technically, yes. And that's what he's pointing out. Technically, you haven't just lied to me, but I know what's really going on here. You have no husband. Right. I'm not going to deny that. You definitely don't have a husband. You have had already five, and you do have a man that you're living with in sin that isn't your husband. But right, you don't have a husband. I'm with you. Okay, yep, that's true. You don't have a husband. He is relentless in this conversation, in driving her to see her spiritual need. He's trying to get her to see her thirst, her need of living water. And when it comes right down to it, the the thing that crushes all of her resistance in the end is her breaking of God's law and him pointing it out. You have sinned grievously in this area. Jesus is not commending her behavior here when he says, you have spoken truly. He's not commending her sexual immorality, and he's not commending her statement of 
hiding her sin by saying, I have no husband. He is pointing out her lie by reiterating the technical truth of what she said. In verse 19, we see that she acknowledges the truth of what he is saying, finally. But still, she is resistant to dealing with her sin or with the spiritual need within her. Verse 19, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Okay, I can't, uh, you know, I can't hide, (laughs) you know obviously what's going on in my life. Okay, so you're a prophet. You know the truth. And then what does she do? Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. You people say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. What's she trying to do? Look at the birdie. She's throwing out a red herring as a final excuse, an avoidance measure. She doesn't want to deal with what Jesus has been offering to her. So she says, there's this conflict about where and how we should worship. So, you know, I can't deal with my own physical need. What I really need answered is this this detail over here about religion. Jesus is not taken in. His response is to dismiss once again her focus on this physical world and to demand that she deal with her spiritual need in a spiritual manner. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So he he deals with her question, essentially by dismissing it. He doesn't let her off the hook and say, how you worship is unimportant. He doesn't uh, allow the Samaritans to continue in their sinful idolatrous worship, he, sa- he, he says clearly, no, salvation is from the Jews. You don't have any idea what you worship. We know. There is right and wrong in this, in this issue over here. But, let's get back to the point. And he does it as quickly as may be. He deals with the red herring in a dismissive way and with a, in a convicting way and in a truthful way. Not as though these things don't matter, but as though these things don't matter for you right now in this conversation. Because then he says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Relentless, relentlessly driving her to her spiritual need for living water. You must worship God in spirit and in truth. You cannot be content with the physical outward manifestations, whether the right kind that the Jews have or the wrong kind that you have. You must worship him in spirit and in truth. Actually worship God. And now, her final excuse, her final resistance to dealing with her spiritual need is to say, what? Well, there's a Messiah coming. He'll take care of all of he'll take care of all of that. He'll answer all those questions. 
And Jesus says, Jesus responds and says, I am the Messiah. You can't wait until the Messiah comes to deal with all this. The Messiah is here. Now deal with it. You must worship him in spirit and in truth. What he's saying is, you're right to pin all your hope on the Messiah. I am your only hope. You're right that he will answer all these questions. I have answered all these questions. You must have this living water. It will give you eternal life. Apart from it, there is no hope. The law of God, our disobedience to it, our spiritual need, all of these are meant to drive us to Jesus Christ in particular, not just to generally drive us to desire a Savior. Do you understand the difference? Everyone acknowledges at some level their need of salvation. Everyone knows at some level that they are a sinner. Everyone knows to a certain degree that they have unmet spiritual, deep within kind of desires, right? What we are always tempted to do when we're speaking with people is to not drive home the point. To not force them to see that these are met only in Jesus Christ, but to be content with them saying, yeah, I need help. Yeah, you need help. I need a hero. Yeah, it's like this great, glorious gospel song, right? No, no, it's not. You need the hero. You need Jesus Christ to see that that need is there, to acknowledge that that need is there, is to finally be not quite as resistant anymore. But then to what do we turn? To drugs, to alcohol, to sex, to money, to music, to some sort of existential, peaceful reality that we'll get through meditation. If we can simply calm ourselves enough, we won't feel that need so achingly within us anymore. What are the things that you are tempted to turn to? What are the things that your friends and family turn to? You see them turning to shopping as though somehow that is, you know, going to be able to meet that spiritual need that they're half of them willing to admit, half of them even not even willing to admit. So this is, this is what we learn. This is the application from our text. If you want to learn how to evangelize, study Jesus interacting with the woman at the well. And understand that what he does is that he drives her to himself specifically. And the way that he drives her to himself specifically is by refusing to let any of her idols, any of her sins, any of her distractions, any of her dismissals, stand. Every wall that she erects, every, every little jump that she makes to get out of the path of him driving her to himself, he's right there, knocking that wall down, stepping back in front of her. So more specifically, more practically, if you're telling people the the good news, if you're trying to explain to somebody why they need to become a Christian, okay, you've got that in your mind. You know, this person really needs Jesus Christ. 
Typically, you do that either because you have great love for them or because you just see their life and how miserable it is and you have great pity for them. You know, often it's one or the other of those things, right? So that's good. That's good. So if you're telling people the good news at that point, don't feel like you have to engage the battles that they want to engage. Jesus doesn't. Do you understand? You see how he just dismisses Jews and Samaritans off to the side. The mountain in Jerusalem off to the side. Yeah, yeah, there's a right answer. Here's the right answer, by the way, but Now, back to you. Your sin demands payment. Jesus died so that our sins could be paid for. Will you put your faith in him? Well, you know, know, there's time. I've got... I'll deal with that eventually. Have you had these kinds of conversations with people? I hope you do. You need to start if you haven't. You will experience all of, all of the strategies that this woman tried to use, this Samaritan woman tried to use, to defend herself against the gospel. And Jesus gives you the model. If they want to bring up some, well, you know, Christians are always hypocrites. Well, you know, they always love, you know, I've seen too much fighting over money amongst Christians. Okay, there's all kinds of people, you know, all kinds of excuses that you can bring up in in accusations against Christians. How are you going to deal with that? You're going to deal with it truthfully, and you're going to dismiss it. And you're going to bring it back to their sin instead. Yes, there are many people who claim the name of Jesus Christ who sin in all kinds of ways. But when you stand before the Lord, you're not going to be able to point at other people and say, but they did that, but he did that, but she's a sinner too. What are you going to do? All these reasonable-sounding justifications that people bring up in their red herrings are reasons why they don't want to listen to you and accept what you're saying, and that simultaneously serve to shield their sin from being examined. Deal with their sin. Deal with it particularly. What else can we learn from Jesus? Don't be afraid to use analogies when you're talking to people. They're helpful. Why do I say that? Well, Jesus is sitting on a well, and he wants a drink of water. That's how this all started, right? And so what does he end up talking about the whole time? Water. but he has a spiritual meaning that he won't let go of. Don't ever get drawn into abandoning. If you're using an analogy, that's great. If you're talking about people's physical needs that they have, that's great. But don't ever let go of the spiritual need that that underscores and that drives all of their physical need. Okay? If you're dealing with a lazy man who has no money because he's unwilling to work a job, and he's talking about how he's hungry and he doesn't have it. Look, hunger is a great analogy. Physical thirst is a great analogy. 
Physical hunger is a great analogy, but the whole point is don't ever, don't ever get turned aside from and, and distracted from dealing with that spiritual reality of the hunger and thirst for righteousness that we must all have. Remember the spiritual realities of life. Don't get caught up in the physical, earthly world to the loss of the truth of the spiritual needs that surround us, of the spiritual battles that are going on, the conflict that is taking place. People will do anything they can to pretend that spiritual realities don't exist today in the United States. In other places in the world, they won't deny that spiritual realities exist, but they'll have different methods. What I'm telling you, here in the United States, by and large, when you're dealing with people, we don't believe that there is a spiritual world, that there are principalities and powers, that there is such a thing as demon possession, that there is such a thing as spiritual need. So you've got to know that here in the United States as you're talking with people. They're going to do anything they can to pretend those spiritual, spiritual realities don't exist. Don't be ashamed to bring them up and talk about them. The water you have within you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the water you have within you, the Spirit of God, is just as real and infinitely more important to life than the stuff you get at the water cooler during your break. Just as real, infinitely more important. but not worth talking about? Of course not. Just as real, infinitely more important, totally worth talking about, like Jesus did. So Jesus loved the woman at the well. He loved her enough to drive her through her sin, the law of God, removing the distractions, doing away with the enmity, drive her, drive her, drive her, ultimately to himself. That is a gift. Not one that she deserved, one that she resists to the bitter end. May God use us to do this work. Let's pray.